If you could have one wish for humanity, what would it be? I am Carlos Botero. And I'm Sinjin Flynn. In this episode of the Houston Symphonies on the Music, we explore Beethoven's ninth and final symphony. Featuring the famous Ode to Joy in its choral finale, Beethoven's Ninth offers humanity an inspiring vision of universal brotherhood. Often praised as the greatest symphony ever written, this work has had an immeasurable impact on music and the world. Between 1800 and 1812, Beethoven completed eight of his nine symphonies. He rarely waited to complete one before beginning another, and often worked on multiple symphonies at once. In just over 12 years, Beethoven had given the world many of the most celebrated pieces of music ever written, including compositions that changed the course of music history. It is surprising, then, that over 11 years separated the completion of Beethoven's 8th and 9th symphonies. Indeed, a few months after he completed his 8th symphony, Beethoven, the composer who lived for his art, stopped composing entirely. Beethoven stopped composing. Why? As the year 1812 drew to a close, Beethoven entered a prolonged crisis in his personal and professional life. We can't be sure what caused the crisis, but one likely catalyst was the end of his relationship with the immortal beloved, a mysterious, unidentified woman who was likely the great love of his life. The end of this relationship must have been very painful for Beethoven, who likely began to fear he would never marry and have a family of his own. Beethoven's friends began to notice that something was wrong. When Johann and Annette Streicher visited him in the summer of 1813, they noted that Beethoven's state of mind was at the lowest ebb it had been in a long time. Beethoven's living quarters had always been infamously disordered, but he seemed to have let his domestic arrangements slip to a new low. He often appeared disheveled, and the strikers were appalled to discover that he had neither a decent coat nor a whole shirt. He may have begun to abuse alcohol, and guilty references to prostitutes appear in his private journal. Save for a few folk song arrangements and minor projects, Beethoven produced nothing. On top of this, several of Beethoven's most important patrons either died fell ill or became financially embarrassed. His friend, Johann Meltzl, the metronome maker, approached him with a scheme. After Napoleon's disastrous Russian campaign in 1812, Austria's allies had gained the upper hand in the war, and the Duke of Wellington, a British field marshal, had recently driven Napoleon out of Spain. Meltzl proposed that Beethoven write a piece celebrating Napoleon's defeat, a sort of anti-Eroica symphony called Wellington's Victory. It was sure to be a success. In place of sophisticated musical development, there would be... cannons. In earlier years, Beethoven had occasionally churned out light dance music and variations on popular opera tunes to make money. So he knew how to simplify his music to appeal to the widest possible audience. With Wellington's victory, however, he outdid himself. At its premiere in December of 1813, it became Beethoven's greatest public success. Still wrestling with despair over his personal life, Beethoven was eager for widespread acclaim, and the Congress of Vienna provided him with a perfect opportunity to obtain it. In 1814, the Tsar of Russia, the King of Prussia, and numerous glittering dignitaries from Britain and France descended on Vienna to negotiate the terms of peace as Napoleon's defeat drew near. Beethoven biographer Maynard Solomon described the Congress as a multitude of balls, banquets, and gala performances, and an endless variety of tournaments, hunts, theatricals, sleigh expeditions, ballet, operas, balloon ascents, and torch-like parades. Beethoven was quick to provide a soundtrack. He dashed off more hackneyed works with titles like Germania, You Wise Founders of Happy Nations, The Glorious Moment, and It Is Accomplished. 
Lacking real musical substance, these celebratory works were cheap imitations of the heroic style Beethoven had created in works like his Third and Fifth Symphonies. While these flattering pieces proved popular with the visiting nobles and royalty, Beethoven's real fans were often bitterly disappointed. At the premiere of Wellington's victory, pianist Johann Wenzel Tomacek was, quote, very painfully affected to see a Beethoven whom Providence had probably assigned to the highest throne in the realm of music among the rudest materialists. I was told that he himself declared the work to be folly. After a later concert, a secret police report noted that, quote, in opposition to his admirers, is formed an overwhelming majority of connoisseurs who refuse absolutely to listen to his works hereafter. In short, Beethoven sold out. Meanwhile, behind the closed doors of Vienna's palaces, statesmen plotted to crush the revolutionary ideals of liberty, equality and brotherhood, once and for all. With Napoleon vanquished, Europe's monarchs will try to turn back the clock as if the French Revolution and the Enlightenment had never happened. In some cases, regimes became even more regressive than they had been before the Revolution, fearing that any trace of dissent will land crowned heads in guillotines. Beethoven and the rest of Europe will soon realize that hopes for increased freedom were not part of the plan for peace. Beethoven also discovered how fleeting fame could be. When the Congress of Vienna ended in June of 1815, the public lost interest in Beethoven's crowd-pleasers, and they have rarely been performed since. The new craze was for Italian opera, which combined simple harmonies, catchy tunes and vocal fireworks. Rossini, in particular, was the toast of European opera houses. While Beethoven loved Rossini's The Barber of Seville, he generally felt that, quote, his music suits the frivolous and sensuous spirit of the age. public did not seem to care. When his popularity vanished, Beethoven searched for validation in his family life, beginning one of the ugliest chapters in his biography. In November of 1815, Beethoven's brother Caspar died, leaving behind a son, Karl, and a widow. Johanna. Beethoven had never approved of Johanna's character. In 1811, she had actually done time in prison for petty fraud involving a pearl necklace. When Beethoven's brother died, he began a protracted legal battle for exclusive custody of his nephew Karl. The custody battle was very painful for the boy, who frequently ran away to his mother. After five years, Beethoven won the case by pulling strings with his high-ranking friends, perverting the normal course of justice. Though Beethoven genuinely loved his nephew, he was in no way prepared to raise a teenage boy, and no person on earth would have been prepared to live with the temperamental Beethoven. While their relationship had its good moments, they were merely islands of calm in an ongoing storm. Beethoven likely felt that obtaining custody of Karl was the only way he would ever have a family of his own. In these years, he felt increasingly isolated as his hearing deteriorated dramatically. Visiting friends had to write down what they wanted to say to him in conversation books, as he could no longer make out spoken words. By the time of his death in 1827, Beethoven was, for all practical purposes, totally deaf. Gastrointestinal health problems that had long plagued Beethoven also worsened, and he was frequently ill and in pain. Sick, lonely, living in squalor, increasingly deaf and seemingly forgotten, 
Beethoven reached a low point when a police officer arrested him in the summer of 1821, having mistaken him for a deranged tramp. From this period of crisis, however, would emerge some of the greatest music ever written. Even as he churned out potboilers for the public, he put his more complex ideas into more private works, including two cello sonatas, the first true song cycle, and especially his last piano sonatas. His music underwent a stylistic transformation as profound as the one that had ushered in the Eroica Symphony. Beethoven's late style is characterized by radical musical experimentation. He explored unconventional key relationships, intense dissonances, contrapuntal complexity, and sudden tempo changes. His musical ideas became hyper-concentrated and economical. It seemed he could now use a few notes to express what would have required a whole phrase in his earlier works. His melodic ideas often took on an irregular, fragmentary, almost rhetorical character, as if the instruments were trying to speak. Beethoven also immersed himself in music of the past, studying the works of Bach, Handel and Renaissance masters like Palestrina. Observing these influences, he created a new musical language that even many of his devoted admirers found challenging. Some blamed his deafness. Others believe he had gone mad. For the next hundred years, composers, musicians and audiences would struggle with these forward-looking works, many of which were not fully embraced until the 20th century. In one passage of his C minor piano sonata, many modern listeners have heard hints of jazz nearly a century ahead of its time. Expressively, Beethoven became less interested in the heroics of his earlier style. His late music turns inward and seems more concerned with spiritual questions than worldly ones. Indeed, this was a time of spiritual questing for Beethoven. At least since his adolescence, Beethoven had disavowed organized religion. He did, however, believe in a higher power and had a rich and very personal spiritual life. As his hearing declined and prospects of marriage faded, Beethoven entered a period of intense soul-searching. A voracious reader, he turned to works from diverse spiritual and philosophical traditions, including classical and contemporary poets and philosophers, ancient Egyptian inscriptions, and Brahmanic Hindu texts like the Bhagavad Gita. His private journal is filled with quotations from these and other sources concerning submission to fate, sacrifice, redemption, and praise of God as a transcendent being and bringer of light. As these thoughts occupy Beethoven's mind, bits and pieces of what would become the Ninth Symphony began to appear in his sketchbooks as early as 1815. The possibility of using them as part of a symphony presented itself in 1817, when the London Philharmonic Society offered him a commission. He would work on the symphony on and off, sometimes distracted by other compositions, until 1822, when he began to devote his full energies to it. As he worked on his sketches, his musical ideas began to take the shape of a symphony with a scope and ambition unlike any that had ever been written before. This will be his great gift to the world, and in a time of darkness and oppression, he would offer humanity a vision of joy and universal brotherhood. Like many groundbreaking pieces of music, it would provoke diverse reactions from the listeners who first heard it. Unlike many other pieces, though, it has continued to do so to the present day. When the composer Hector Berlioz set out to analyze this symphony, he began with some trepidation, noting that, quote, Among the many diverse views that have been expressed on this score, there can hardly be two that are in agreement. More recently, the musicologist Nicholas Cook wrote that instead of offering ready-made meanings, the Ninth Symphony demands that the listener participate in the creation of meaning. 
Of all the works in the mainstream repertory of Western music, the Ninth Symphony seems the most like a construction of mirrors, reflecting and refracting the values, hopes and fears of those who seek to understand and explain it. This strange quality of the Ninth Symphony makes any effort to describe it especially daunting. In what follows, we have tried to give some idea of the numerous ways people have interpreted this symphony and have even suggested some interpretations of our own. Still, even for those who know this symphony best, its ultimate meaning remains something of a mystery. As you get to know it for yourself, you too will be drawn into its construction of mirrors, where you will doubtless find meanings of your own. Ready, Sinjan? I think so, Carlos. The symphony begins with orchestrated silence. It is with this interval, a bare fifth composed of an E and an A, that Beethoven begins the symphony, along with its twin, the fourth. The fifth is one of the simplest possible harmonies. Falling fifths are also the basis of the simplest harmonic progressions. It is as if Beethoven is going back to the basic building blocks of music itself. For all this symphony sophistication, there is something primal about its music, something that appeals to our most basic instincts as human beings. The fifth is also ambiguous. Because it lacks a third, we cannot tell if the harmony is major or minor. This ambiguity creates a sense of mystery, tension and anticipation, heightened by the extremely soft volume at which the music begins. Some listeners feel Beethoven has created the illusion that this sound has been going on forever and it has only just become loud enough for us to hear. Others have compared this opening to the ancient Greek creation myth in which the universe began in formless chaos. Descending fifths and fourths soon begin to animate the music. As the music grows louder, we have the sense that we are moving towards something, something great and terrible. The tension of the open fifth built on A resolves down a fifth into a powerful statement in D minor, the main idea of this movement. Fragmentary, stentorian, and jagged, it follows the rhythms of speech more than of song. What is the music trying to say? Some hear a cry of anguish, others are threatening force. Progressing with great difficulty, it gives Beethovenian struggle a cosmic scope. Then it vanishes. We seem to be back at the beginning, with one difference. The fifth is built with the notes D and A. The music is progressing, and as it rises again, we feel we are yearning toward something else. The main idea returns in B-flat major, a third down from D minor. After falling fifths, falling thirds form the basis of the second most common chord progression. It's as if the fifths have been filled in with thirds. The music is evolving, becoming more complex. Is this B-flat major statement a challenge to the opening D minor one? As if unable to decide whether the pull of D minor or B-flat major is stronger, the music begins to fragment 
as it turns back toward D minor. But the pull of the new key is strong. Amid Bach-inspired counterpoint, the music turns back to B-flat major. We hear a more hopeful, lyrical idea. Instead of introducing a more melodic idea at this point, fragments of the first theme are developed in B-flat major. This flourishing of fragmentary ideas has been compared to the branching of a tree. As an example, consider the beginning of the main idea. Beethoven takes this fragment and transforms it into this. This lyrical fragment outlines strange and easy harmonies growing in intensity until we reach a rush of strings. More fragmentary ideas seem to coalesce in a powerful affirmation of B-flat major. The music falters, and the mysterious fifths of the opening seem to return. It soon becomes clear, however, that the music is headed in another direction. The music descends down another third to G minor as we enter a prolonged developmental section. We hear menacing passages which alternate with pleading, plaintive, melodic fragments. A lyrical transformation of the main idea appears. This leads to a complex, relentless combination of melodic fragments of the main idea. Music breaks down. In a desperate passage, the music almost seems to beg for relief. The music begins to rise, leading us towards something. right back at the beginning, but the music has been shockingly transformed. The full orchestra suddenly enters at full volume on a D major chord. The open fifths have been completed with the third of the chord, an F sharp. The placement of F sharp in the bass, however, makes this chord highly unstable. What does it mean? To some, it sounds triumphant. For others, it has evoked sheer terror. Its raw power undermines both D minor and B flat major, rocking the foundations of this movement. The main idea returns in one of the most intense and violent climaxes in all music.
still reeling from the return of the main idea, the lyrical fragments that first appear in B-flat major now return in the new key of D major. The music soon darkens, however, as harmonies turn back to D minor. The darkness of D minor seems to have overwhelmed all alternatives. As the movement ends, we hear the unmistakable tread of a funeral march. Beginning softly at first, it grows in intensity, implacable, inescapable. the funeral march seemed to leave no room for escape from D minor. In the final seconds of the movement, Beethoven brings back the main idea unharmonized. The final note is an unharmonized D. Like the open fifths at the beginning, this D is ambiguous. It could be harmonized as D minor or D major. Though D minor is still in our ears, Beethoven leaps open the possibility of something else. Normally, one would expect a slow movement to follow such an intense first movement. But instead, Beethoven wrote a scherzo, marked molto vivace, Italian for very lively. The word scherzo is Italian for joke, and early listeners commented on its roguish comedy, as, quote, the wildest mischief plays its wicked game. Indeed, there seems to be a sort of black humor afoot in this movement. To begin with, many listeners have heard its opening as a parody of the opening of the first movement. Like the first movement, the second begins with quick descendant ideas with short, long rhythms. Compare the first movement with the second. What was soft, ambiguous, and ultimately tragic in the first movement is now loud, short, and obvious. The timpani, which will play a prominent role in this movement, barge in with the note F, leaving no doubt this time that the movement is in D minor. The theme that follows ironically combines seriousness with frivolity. It is both a catchy little dance tune and the subject of the most learned of musical forms, the fugue. A fugue is a type of musical composition that seeks to combine many different melodic parts at once. Each part should be interesting by itself, but should also fit together perfectly with the other parts. This is quite a challenging skill for composers to master, so the fugue was traditionally considered a serious academic type of music. The easiest way to recognize a fugue is by the way it begins. The main idea, or subject, of the fugue first enters in one part, then another, and another. The music crescendos, abandoning the learned pretensions of fugue for the more earthy pleasures of dance.
The music suddenly falls to a whisper. As the music changes key, the woodwinds take up a contrasting, lively tune in C major. Suddenly, the music stops short. First, we go back to the fugue and repeat what we just heard. But the second time we reach this passage, the music continues on, tumbling through a disorienting number of keys. Now, fugues traditionally allow composers to show off how clever they can be in combining a single idea with itself in many ways, and Beethoven has a few tricks up his sleeve. The original version occurred in perfectly square, danceable four-bar phrases. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Now Beethoven reveals that it also works in an irregular ritmo di tre battute, or rhythm of three beats. One, two, three. One, two, three. The timpani is apparently having none of it. It keeps interrupting the three-beat pattern. When the music returns to the ritmo di quattro battute, or rhythm of four beats, the main idea does another trick. It overlaps with itself every two bars like this. After a crescendo, the main idea returns with demonic intensity. contrasting woodwind tune also returns, at first in D major, but then in D minor. After one more appearance from the main team, the music leads to something totally new. The music instantly shifts to D major as we hear a new melody that sounds like a snippet of rustic folk music. In contrast with the ironic humor and learned tricks of the main idea, this new melody is naive and pure. Beethoven treats it with utter simplicity, simply repeating it over and over with variations in orchestral color. Some listeners believe this interlude is a depiction of Arcadia, a legendary region of ancient Greece that became a symbol of pastoral utopia, a sort of Greek Garden of Eden. Melodically, the contour of this melody is very similar to one of the more lyrical fragments of the first movement. Compare them back to back. Both of them appear in D major and use simple D major scales. While unassuming at first, it seems that these simple, pure ideas are leading somewhere, hinting at possibilities yet to be realized. Alas, Arcadia is only a legend, and the daydream soon comes to an end. The 
first part of the movement returns in its entirety. But this time, something different happens as it draws to a close. The Arcadian folk song cheekily sneaks in just before the end perhaps poking fun at the ironic main theme. Like the first movement, this scherzo ends with ambiguous octave Ds, but this time with D major still ringing in our ears. In this slow third movement, we at last find solace and tranquility. One early reviewer described this movement as a most profound song, full of warmth and flowing in heavily melancholy. In this movement, the key of B-flat major, which brought hope to the first movement, returns, providing catharsis and healing the wounds of the first movement. Marked adagio molto e cantabile, or very slow and singing, the long, arching main melody gradually climbs to a blissful high note. As the melody draws to a close, we hear a magical key change. The music shifts to the key of D major, the other beacon of light in this symphony as another slightly faster melody appears. Throughout this movement, these two melodies alternate in a graceful double theme and variations. In his book on Beethoven's late style, Maynard Solomon included a chapter on Beethoven's beliefs regarding the healing power of music. In it, he relates a story about Beethoven's piano student, Dorothea von Ertmann, who was one of the early champions of Beethoven's music. In 1804, tragedy struck Dorothea when her only child, a three-year-old son, suddenly passed away. Unable to grieve or even to weep, she went to visit Beethoven. Quote, he uttered not a single word of greeting, but sat down at the piano and played for her, until at last she began to sob, and thus her grief found both expression and relief. I felt as if I were listening to a choir of angels celebrating the entrance of my poor child into the world of light, she later told her niece. When he had finished, he pressed my hand sadly and went away as silently as he had come. We will never hear the music Beethoven played for Dorothea, but it might have sounded something like this. If there were ever a piece of music that could heal the soul, surely this is it. The last movement begins with what Wagner famously called a Schreckensfanfare, a dissonant horror fanfare 
that shatters the tranquility of the previous movement. We then hear something very strange. The cellos and basses play a strange line written in the style of operatic recitative. In opera, recitatives are a kind of sung speech. By adopting this style for the cellos and basses, Beethoven creates the impression that they are trying to speak. Cellos and basses are confronted again by the horror fanfare, but undeterred, they continue with the same speech-like style. What could they be trying to say? Interestingly, Beethoven actually wrote words to go with the recitatives in one of his sketches for this passage. Carlos, would you translate for the cellos and basses and let us know what words Beethoven wrote for them? Certainly. This is a day of celebration. It should be celebrated with song. Out of the mists, the orchestra offers the cellos and basses the beginning of the first movement. Oh no, not this. This reminds us of our despair. Something more pleasing is what I require. The orchestra tries again, suggesting the scherzo. Not this. This is a mere farce. The slow movement also reappears. This... this is too tender. We need something more lively. A new melody arises. Yes, this is it. Now it has been found. At last, we hear a melody that satisfies this wordless voice. This is one of the most famous melodies ever written. But even if you've never heard it before, Beethoven has designed it to be instantly familiar. Beethoven labored intensely over this melody, producing dozens of sketches for the last eight bars alone. He designed it to be easily singable by anyone, with a smooth contour that outlines the interval of a fifth. It is as if the open fifths that began the symphony have finally been filled in and completed in a clear, unequivocal D major. The D minor of the first two movements is no more than a distant memory. To prime our ears for this melody, Beethoven planted seeds of it in the earlier movements. This becomes this becomes this. First, our talkative cellos and basses take up the melody themselves, as if the character they represent has begun to sing it by himself. The other instruments gradually join the low strings, playing a series of variations on the melody, becoming bolder and more brilliant with each one.
The celebration is cut short by the return of the Strecken's fanfare. This time even louder and more dissonant. Then something revolutionary happens. For the first time in the history of music, the human voice becomes part of a symphony. The cellos and basses are transformed into a heroic bass baritone who answers the horror fanfare with words Beethoven wrote himself. Oh friends, not these sounds. Let us strike up something more pleasing and more joyful. The bass baritone then calls out the German word for joy, Freude. And it is answered by a chorus of male voices. The bass baritone then begins to sing the melody, but with words. The melody is a setting of Friedrich Schiller's Ode to Joy. Beethoven had had ambitions to set Schiller's Ode to Joy to music since he first discovered the poem as a teenager in Bonn. Written in 1785, before the French Revolution and the horrors that followed, the poem describes a utopian vision of humanity, united by the divine figure of joy. At the time, Friedrich Schiller and his works were widely seen as symbols of freedom and enlightenment values. This association was so strong that a theory even sprang up that this poem was really an ode to freedom, and that Schiller had substituted the word joy in an attempt to avoid censorship. There is no historical evidence to support this theory, but the text, as it stands, still sends a powerful message of equality and universal brotherhood. Many composers set Schiller's poem to music, including perhaps a young Beethoven. Although if he did complete an early setting of the poem, he most likely destroyed it. Perhaps Beethoven wanted to wait until he felt his skill as a composer was equal to the vision he had for this poem. He had done a sort of trial run for the Ninth Symphony when he wrote his choral fantasy, a work for solo piano and orchestra that features a choral ending with vocal soloists. By the time Beethoven wrote the finale of his Ninth Symphony, however, few people believed in its message anymore. The horrors of the reign of terror, the disappointment of Napoleon, the carnage of years of war, and the ultimate victory of politically repressive regimes had disillusioned many. Schiller himself disavowed it altogether, believing that its message was naive. Beethoven, however, still believed in the Ode to Joy. While other composers were inventing national anthems, Beethoven sought to create an anthem for all humanity, a piece of music that would show people a vision for a better world in which all became brothers united by joy. Maybe if this music were powerful enough, it might actually help unite people and bring the world closer to the poem's utopian vision. Beethoven would not, however, set the entire poem. He carefully selected and arranged only the stanzas that he felt would best accomplish his mission. Beethoven drew on a wide range of influences in composing the finale of the Ninth Symphony. In his sketches, Beethoven wrote that his Ninth Symphony would have a Bacchic finale. This is a reference to the Roman god of wine, Bacchus, and his Greek counterpart, Dionysus. Influenced by Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the German philosopher Nietzsche would later describe the Dionysian thus, quote, Either through the influence of narcotic drink, of which all primitive men and peoples speak in their hymns, or through the powerful coming on of spring, which drives joyfully through all of nature, that Dionysian excitement arises, as it intensifies the subjective fades into complete forgetfulness of self, under the magic of the Dionysian, not only does the bond between man and man lock itself in place once more, but also nature itself, 
rejoices again in her festival of reconciliation. Ironically, Beethoven's celebration of Enlightenment values takes the form of a wild, irrational, ecstatic dance in which people forget themselves and become united with others. Both Schiller's poem and Beethoven's music fuse ancient Christian and pagan images and symbols. The utopian vision imagined in the finale might be a prophecy of the future, but it also feels ancient and timeless. Before we listen to it, I think a little German lesson might be helpful. In order to get the most out of the music, it helps to have a rough idea of what the words actually mean. Let's just take a look at a few key words that Beethoven especially emphasizes throughout the movement. Perhaps the single most important word is Freude, which is German for joy. The entire poem is addressed to the spirit of joy embodied as a winged, goddess-like figure that unites all people wherever she goes. Another key line that Beethoven repeats again and again is Alle Menschen werden Brüder. Alle means all. Menschen means human beings. Werden means become. And Brüder is brothers. Alle Menschen werden Brüder means all human beings become brothers. Perhaps more than any other line of the poem, this one captures the essence of what Beethoven wanted to say in this movement. As you listen to the music, if you can recognize these key words, you will realize how the music comments on them and adds meaning, just as you would when listening to a song in English. The better you get to know the words, the more power the music will have. Biographer Jan Swofford suggests that the traditions of Freemasonry may have inspired the treatment of the joy melody when it is first sung by the bass, baritone, and chorus. Brothers in Masonic lodges would often sing songs celebrating freedom and brotherhood when gathered together. Soon thereafter, the entire chorus and quartet of solos takes up the melody, singing variations on it with the following stanzas. Joy, beautiful spark of divinity, daughter of Elysium, we enter, burning with fervor, heavenly being, your sanctuary. Your magic reunites what custom has divided. All human beings become brothers, wherever your gentle wings hover. Whoever has been lucky enough to become a friend to a friend, whoever has found a beloved wife, let him join our songs of praise. Yes, and anyone who can call one soul his own on this earth. Any who cannot, let them slink away from this gathering in tears. Every creature drinks in joy at nature's breast. Good and bad alike follow her trail of roses. She gives us kisses and wine, a true friend, even in death. Even the worm was given desire, and the cherub stands before God. At this point, the music comes to a halt, and one of the most discussed and debated passages of the symphony begins. The key of B-flat major returns in this variation of the joy melody, and the sounds of cymbals and drums mark this passage as Turkish music. Turkish music was a musical style that became popular in 18th century Vienna, and it carried many different cultural meanings. Originally derived from the battle music of Turkish Janissary soldiers, it had since evolved on its own, and by Beethoven's time had little to do with authentic Turkish music. Nevertheless, its origins gave this style a dual meaning. It could be an exotic symbol of a foreign land or a symbol of war. Indeed, Austrian military bands often played this style of music in Beethoven's day. 
An additional consideration is that Turkish music was also often seen as popular street music rather than serious concert music, although Mozart and Haydn both used Turkish music in several of their works. Several interpretations of the Turkish music in the finale of the Ninth Symphony have been suggested over the centuries. Some believe that the juxtaposition of high and low musical styles may be Beethoven's way of indicating that people from all social classes should be united. Another interpretation is that Beethoven used the Turkish music to show that peoples of all races and religions are included in the utopian vision. Still others believe that the Turkish music is used to create a heroic military atmosphere. Indeed, the tenor soloist leading the men of the chorus also conjures images of soldier brothers. Here is what they sing. Happily, as his sons fly through the heaven's glorious plan, run, brothers, your race joyfully like a hero to victory. Fugal passage leading back to D major and Seuss. Many have interpreted this passage as a depiction of the brothers running their race like a hero going to victory. The music then dies away, leading to perhaps the most famous version of the Ode to Joy melody. Section, the music slows down, shifting to G major. In this passage, the poem explores more spiritual themes regarding the relationship of humanity to God. To evoke a sacred atmosphere, Beethoven was inspired by choral music of the Renaissance. This Gloria by Palestrina, for instance, begins with male voices singing an unharmonized chant melody before the rest of the chorus enters. Beethoven creates a similar call-and-response effect in this section. He also used old scales associated with that era to create an aura of ancient holiness that matches Schiller's verses. This is another stanza that Beethoven repeats often, so we will translate just a few key words for you. Seit umschlungen Millionen means be embraced millions. Dieser Kuss der ganze Welt means this kiss is for the whole world.
Then they sing. Brothers, above the canopy of stars, must a loving father dwell. Do you bow down before him, you millions? Do you sense your creator, O world? The moment when they sing, seek him above the canopy of stars, above the stars he must dwell, is one of Beethoven's most otherworldly and beautiful. The music returns to D major as the women of the chorus combine the Zeitumschungen theme and the Freude theme in a double fugue that symbolically unites the sacred with the worldly, the Christian with the pagan. Listen to how Beethoven weaves the two melodies and verses around each other. of the movement focuses on the Freude stanza and the side Umschlungen stanza. Tempos change suddenly as the music approaches its end. We hear a heavenly cadenza for the vocal soloists. Now the music lingers. Now it races ahead. Then the Turkish music reappears. The symphony ends mark prestissimo as fast as possible. to live in a utopian society of universal brotherhood that's probably as close as you will ever get. difficult to imagine the symphony ending in any other way. But some scholars believe Beethoven might have had second thoughts about the choral finale. Near the end of his sketches for the symphony, he included a sketch of a melody in D minor labelled Finale Instrumentale, or Instrumental Finale. A similar melody appears earlier in the sketchbook labelled Before the Ode to Joy. Was this an idea for the choral finale that he discarded, or an idea for an entirely new finale in the tragic key of D minor? We may never know for sure, but ultimately, Beethoven let the choral finale stand and used the melody from the sketchbook in the finale of his string quartet in A minor, opus 132. When Beethoven finished the symphony in February 1824, he considered premiering it in Berlin, 
even though he lived in Vienna and the symphony had been commissioned by the London Philharmonic Society. He was annoyed by the Viennese music scene, but changed his mind when a group of Vienna's musical connoisseurs sent him a petition that practically begged him to give the premiere in Vienna. As it turned out, Vienna's music lovers had not forgotten him. The premiere was difficult. The orchestra was made up of a mixture of professionals and amateurs, so during the more difficult passages, of which there were many, a number of musicians would simply drop out. The music was extremely difficult by the standards of the day, and the vocal soloist parts remain amongst the most challenging in the repertoire. Technical flaws aside, the symphony was warmly received by the Viennese audience, who were delighted to hear a new symphony by Beethoven. Perhaps the most famous event of the evening occurred either after the second movement or at the end. Beethoven, completely deaf, was still leafing through the score even though the music had finished. The mezzo-soprano soloist, Carolina Unger, had to turn him around so that he could see the audience's rapturous applause. Beethoven would not leave to see his symphony recognized as the greatest symphony ever written. He will write no more symphonies, spending his final years creating some of the most profound music for a string quartet ever written. When he died in March of 1827, he left humanity unparalleled musical gifts. Through his perseverance in the face of his hearing loss and personal hardships, he achieved one of the great triumphs of the human spirit. As long as humanity is waiting for Elysium, his works will continue to challenge and inspire us. He still has much to say to us yet. On the Music is a co-production of the Houston Symphony and Houston Public Media. For more episodes and a complete list of credits, visit houstonsymphony.org slash onthemusic. Please send your questions, comments and feedback to onthemusic at HoustonSymphony.org Thank you for listening. Thank you.